Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, where we aim to help you increase your charity's income and impact by sharing the experience and expertise of our guests. If you enjoy the podcast, please do drop me a note on LinkedIn, Twitter, or email. A few words of encouragement really make a huge difference when sometimes it feels a bit like you're talking into the void. And I also really appreciate any constructive feedback that will help me to improve. I'm Alex Blake, your podcast host, and I'm joined today by Ollie Barrett, who's been described as the most connected person in Britain. He loves to make connections between people and ideas, and this has led to him set up several social purpose initiatives and organizations, as well as for-profit startups, and he's worked with a really eclectic mix of organizations, from startups to large global brands and governments. So I'm particularly interested in learning about and sharing with you how Ollie's developed some of these charities and social enterprises, some of the successful cross-sector partnerships he's developed. And my hope is that maybe these stories of collaboration and bringing ideas to life might spark ideas for you in addressing the social challenges that you're focused on. So welcome to the podcast, Ollie. How are you today? I'm very well, Alex. Thank you very much for having me. Great to be here. Great. So I thought it'd be useful just to get a bit of introduction from you to what you do, what that sort of role of connector looks like in practice. Uh, maybe you, you can just mention one or two of those sort of charities or initiatives that you've been involved in setting up. Yeah, I describe myself as a serial co-founder. Serial because I have been involved in a number of different ventures and I want to be involved in lots more. And co-founder because I've never started anything on my own. So I always require a far better organized, often far more committed, let's be honest, because they will be giving their full time in many cases, teammate, co-founder, partner to do things with. And, you know, I've always found it far more enjoyable, far less lonely doing it that way. I dropped out of two unis, started my first business, uh, which I feel had a social impact to it uh, when I was at the second of those unis. And while I was still studying, that was 150 of us around the country trying to reinvent the careers fair with more interesting organizations. And um, a few years later, I went on to start what became a very large schools entrepreneurship challenge called Tenor. So giving out now almost half a million and more £10 notes to school kids and challenging them to see if they can make money and make a difference. So what's ended up happening is I've been involved at the start of a whole range of companies, social enterprises, what now became have become charities. And typically, I try to stay involved in some way, but the role evolves over time. So I suppose the second string to the bow is then try and stay involved and be useful where I can, if you think of the Turn on the Subtitles initiative that I co-founded with Henry Warren. Keep involved as a co-founder and be useful. Volunteer at yourself where kids fix their own youth clubs. Try and remain an ally, remain useful. Start up Britain with number 10, a national campaign, helping people who have decided they want to start a company. There, my role was bringing co-founders together. So I suppose it's spotting and making useful connections, bringing things to life, be those partnerships or organizations and staying involved in a way that best suits the organization. So uh, I suppose, you know, it's not what you would call conventional, but I've thoroughly enjoyed it and, and, you know, continue to try and be helpful. Yeah, great. It sounds really interesting. And so am I, in terms of the role that you've had, it's not necessarily been that traditional sort of founder stepping into a sort of CEO role, and then at some point leaving. You've What's typically your role been at sort of different stages of those enterprises? It has completely depended. Let's think about Tenor. Um, I was giving talks in schools about starting up 
because I'd already started my first business. I wasn't satisfied with the talk as a way of inspiring young people. To me, it was a bit like giving a PowerPoint about swimming. Yeah. So I thought, what's an idea for a challenge? And literally that day, I read a newspaper article about a vicar giving their congregation £10. That vicar had helped raise more money than he ever had done before for the church. I thought, there's a cool microfinance idea. If ever I saw one, call up the vicar, got his permission to borrow the idea. But then, of course, the problem was I didn't have any money to start it and I didn't know any schools. I wasn't even in touch with my old school. So that is a theme that has come up again and again, which is who's a credible, keen partner who has the relationships you need to succeed. And in this case, it happened to be a government-backed, Gordon Brown government-backed national campaign called Enterprise UK. Took the idea to Tom and Scott, Tom Savage, Scott Kane there. They embraced it. Together, we went and raised the money. But We had the audacity to say, well, rather than pilot it with 10 pupils, let's do it with 10,000 in year one. So I suppose helping originate the idea, connect it with the essential partners, but then it was nothing without Luke or Martha, the gripper, as I called them, who, and I mean that as a high compliment, the project manager um, who's going to grip it and wake up every morning thinking about the detail to deliver it. And really, that was the secret to its success. So partnership, someone with boots on the ground to grip it and have all of their attention on it. But then I would continue to try and be helpful, firing it into Newsnight at the BBC, got us coverage across the network, took us, thanks to a good friend of mine, Shah Wasman, to Andrew Reynolds, its first funder. Um, And then continuing to think, it's now been adopted by Young Enterprise, but how can I be helpful? It's now given birth to, or rather has a sibling called Fiverr for primary schools. And very often that involvement then becomes light touch. Um, But hopefully that makes some sense as originator, connector, helper along the way yeah so with that one it wasn't there wasn't a need to set up a new organization there was something that already existed so you're able to take the idea to them well, and they, they... no it's a good it's a good point so with the help of Bateswell's Braithwaite we did form initially a community interest company which served its purpose okay. for a few years the government campaign ran out of road and funding so tenor itself was put up for adoption and happily, the adopting, the successful parent, if you like, was Young Enterprise, which is okay. a charity I'd already supported. I'd been on their board in East London. Uh, I'd got to know them. And so I actually pledged to whoever adopted it, I will continue to be useful. So it now sits within a very successful UK-based charity. Mm. Is this a bit of a theme where you've come up with a, an idea, you've identified a problem and you you see a, an idea that could be a solution and it's maybe in a an area that where you don't really have that sort of pre-existing specialist knowledge or networks. And then you've you've kind of gone from not having that to suddenly, you know, what how do you make that leap to then being able to bring those people together and and get things moving in that way? Well, I think without sounding terribly flippant, I've never been very burdened by expertise. So I've never gone down a big rabbit hole in terms of learning or knowledge to become an expert. So I've almost had that jack of all trades, I see you could call it confidence to know that I'm not the expert. So one string to my bow is, you know, presenting, chairing, interviewing people. And the crucial, the golden rule there is make them feel comfortable and don't try and compete with them on expertise. Let them do what they do best. So with VIY, volunteer it yourself. I read about youth clubs literally closing down because they were in disrepair and said to my partners, Tim and Ed, couldn't we get kids fixing their own youth clubs? And by chance, I'd seen a plumber very successful entrepreneur, plumber Charlie Mullins from Pimlico Plumbers, writing a blog post as to why he thought we should get school kids fixing their own schools. So before you know it, I'm pinging him an email 
saying, do you fancy a cup of tea to brainstorm an idea? He went on to pledge the time of his team. That gave us the asset we needed to match fund it. Had a coffee with a foundation at the time, which was called V. I said over a sip of coffee, actually, this is less DIY, more VIY. They said, I like that. And that little bit of wordplay was worth £20,000 in match funding, which enabled us to go to UK youth and London youth to trial this in two youth clubs, brought in city and guilds, thanks to Tim and Ed's expertise, so that the young people would get an accreditation, brought in what we hoped would be a DIY chain, Wix in the end, B&Q strung us along, if I can put it politely, for (laughs) six months before saying no. Wix said yes, gave us all the kit and materials, not just for one year, but for many years. And strangely, we invited the big lottery fund to our wash-up meeting. They ended up piling in with some ideas of their own, commissioned us to apply for what turned out to be a million pounds in funding to scale it to over 300 locations. So, I mean, it might sound like a a sort of a a zigzaggy story, but hopefully it gives a, a picture of, you know, just those, you know, big idea simple start, bring in partners, make sure there's plenty in it for all of them and uh, and see what happens. Yeah. And uh, just, you mentioned your partners, Tim and Ed. So that were they people you were working with already on something else? Yes. So um, Tim Redding, Ed Selwood, two of the most brilliant colleagues you could ever hope to meet. Passionate about impact, especially passionate about cross-sector, unlikely alliances, I think we'd have called it. We had a small agency called COSPA, the co-sponsorship agency, which was particularly interested in cross-sector partnerships. And I remember doing two years on Gordon Brown's Council on Social Action and came away thinking, I want to introduce Tim, who was at that time just a colleague, really, before becoming a business partner to that group, because he continues to thrive off these unlikely alliances, teaming up retired builders with unemployed young people for a show with Channel 4, bringing empty homes back into use. So so we had a vehicle. In the end, VIY became our flagship project and is now a standalone profitable social enterprise employing many people, several offices across the UK. And many of the mentors that have supported VIY have done literally dozens of projects because because they continue to get as much out of it as they put in. Yeah, great. And I remember the place where I came across your work first was, I'm not sure quite how I found it, but I watched a YouTube video you'd done that was about how to build a better network, I think. It was certainly about kind of networking, but not in the sort of sense of networking that everyone dreads of, you know, being... <laughs> queuing for coffee at a business breakfast or whatever, but about, you know, building a network that leads to these sorts of opportunities. And one of the things in there was about taking these kind of long shots where you think, okay, who would I ideally like to connect with to, you know, to enable this thing to happen, to take this idea forward. So with the Charlie Mullins example, was that one of those long shot things for you or did you have some kind of link already? No, we had crossed paths very briefly at a speed networking event that I'd been hosting. That normally disqualifies um, someone from ever wanting to speak to you again, by the way, but I thought I'd... (laughs) I'd chance my arm. By the way, queuing for coffee is often the best bit, actually, because you can bump into people and you know it's going to end and uh, it can be quite informal. But um, events aside, I'm a great believer in this. So my first ever company, I needed advice on an advert and I knew nothing about advertising. And the most famous ad agency in the world at the time was Saatchi and Saatchi. So I cold called them 
managed to get summoned into their HQ. And uh, that led to my own office in Saatchi's, meeting their clients, meeting our first investors, actually. So I suppose that sowed a seed, helpfully for me, probably unhelpful for others, um, of saying, just go for it. I think it's never been easier to connect with someone, certainly to write to them. Um, I think if you're brief, if you personalize it, if you get your timing right, people can always say no, and most people will ignore you. So I'm a great believer in sending something more than once. I'm also a great believer in setting up triggers. So if there's someone or an organization I've got my eye on, I'll set up a Google alert on them. So my inbox will get a ping when they hit the news. And very often I am then finding myself writing to them, mending something they've written about, or maybe stuck their neck out about, or even commiserating them if they've uh, with them if they've had some bad news or are going through some turbulence. But I tend to keep it quite pithy, quite brief. I get a really high response rate. I don't tend to ask for a coffee or a meeting in that first email. I tend to try and play a longer game with these things. But to be perfectly honest, if I think about almost all of the things I've helped start, they've begun with a long shot of some sort. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask about the sort of success rates, if you like, on those cold approaches. Because, yeah, is it the case that realistically you will mostly get ignored? And so, you know, it's not, you know, if people try it two or three times and it doesn't work and give up, then it's, you know, um, you need to send 20 of these and you might get two or three of them where you get a response. Is it that sort of thing? Certainly. I mean, you could call it a numbers game, but really I find back to the brevity point, when a lot of people receive an email, they're wondering if they're the only person who's received it. And if they suspect mm. a lot of people have received it, they often delete it or ignore it. Let's be honest. Mm. So for me, the ability to build trust almost immediately by using a name that they recognize, even if it's the name of a city or an organization, the ability to build credibility really quickly. And a lot of people don't realize the credibility they already have through program that they've just been on, an organization they've worked with in the past, but also just getting to the point and not overburdening them with information. You can make a long email look like a short email by putting more information under your signature. But playing along with these things and thinking, you know, why now? Why am I writing to this person? And am I just calling to say, I see you in the world and I admire your impact? Or am I making a suggestion, bringing something to their attention that they might find interesting or helpful? So I find, Alex, a lot of these things don't have to be as transactional as people first think. And they'll say to me, well, what would I be asking them for? Why would they want to meet me? And my point is always, well, in the first instance, it might not be about that, you know? Yeah, I think if you just say, do you want to catch up? Do you want a coffee? People think, well, no, I haven't really got time. Like, what do you want? You know, and, and people want to either know, yeah, what it is specifically or... Yeah. I'm going to give you yeah. an example. Um, I'm helping a charity at the moment think about how it connects with men of a particular age. And my Unlikely Alliances brain starts to think, which brands have an unusually large number of customers over the age of 50, for example. Mm. And then I start to scroll through my mental Rolodex and then drop a couple of them a note just to say, um, you know, out of interest, you know, um, might you be interested in this particular cause? Just to start to sow a few seeds. Likewise, I think about a publishing partner, a newspaper or a radio company. And I start to just play with ideas in my mind of what a nice campaign might look like. And other than money, what might be in it for them? Is there a, a, a another link to that cause. And then I start network mapping. Well, how would we get to the board of that company? Is it their non-exec? Has their chief exec ever spoken about this theme? And can I start to sow a seed, as I have done in that case, really briefly initially, saying, I've been wondering, and just put that out there. So I think 
I'm a great believer in playfulness, even with serious subjects when it comes to these things. And even if you're working with really serious charities, that idea of audacity, how could you push an idea without offending anyone to the point when it's almost laugh out loud audacious? So they will laugh and say, well, that would be something. I'd like to see that. And then you've got their attention. Mm. On that topic, I suppose, of cross-sector partnerships, I appreciate that this isn't necessarily your your day job. You're not a, a person looking to develop partnerships between charities and businesses, but it's obviously something that you've you've been involved in. What are some of the things that you would suggest that maybe if a charity leader is thinking, how can I engage a business in helping me to achieve what we're looking to achieve, where that, that might involve funding, but might involve some of those other kind of things and, and how the charity can add value to that business. What are some of the things you've picked up on or or maybe you've got one or two examples that you can share and we and people can kind of, you know, pick their own their own kind of insights from it. Yeah, well I'm I am a great believer in working with translators, if you like. And I, it strikes me you do a good job of this. Um but you know the, the parties that you're dealing with can speak different languages and move at very different paces. So mm-hmm. I think having somebody who's able to translate from time to time and hold the ring and bring multiple horses to water can be really powerful. And you know, I've seen that on so many occasions. I think there are different types of leader within the business world. Some will want you to bring a fully formed idea and say, what's the big idea? Whereas others might be prepared even briefly to say, let's think of a problem area that's worth solving and just start to think about possible ways to address that and and, and have that more creative, open-minded conversation. When we started Startup Britain, there was nothing more than my suggestion to go and see a member of the House of Lords, David Young, the late, great Lord Young, for a coffee. And I invited seven other mates to come and see him for coffee. I actually invited 12, but only seven could come. We accidentally turned into the co-founders of Startup Britain, which launched three weeks later alongside the Prime Minister, completely funded by the private sector, including the programme of startup loans, which has now loaned over £900 million to over 100,000 businesses. So in other words, that started with a, wouldn't it be nice to sit and have a coffee and talk about how we solve this particular challenge, which was better support for people starting out in business. So um, so don't be afraid. You might fear, oh, I wouldn't want to waste their time. But there are people in the business world who will be happy to throw around those ideas. In terms of the partnership itself, I think it's absolutely, and your listener will utterly get this, but I think the value exchange, what each party gets from this, is the single biggest success determiner of, of all. And if you haven't balanced the value exchange, then in my experience, the partnership will last for a relatively short amount of time. So if the corporate is giving money, getting a little bit of something back, including um, a feeling of goodwill, if you're not careful, they will be looking for their next charity partner within the next year or the next three years. So in Wix's case, we didn't actually want their money. I'm going back to Wix, VIY, Kids Fix Their Own Youth Clubs. We knew we wanted the kit and materials, but then we started thinking, well, what else do these organizations have? So starting to better map the assets, it could be publications, it could be their stores, it could be their team members. Yes, it could be pots of paint. It could be internal newsletters. It could be strategic relationships with their parent company at the time, Travis Perkins. How do they fit into the wider world? And then actually, we wanted to sign up their tradespeople, their customers. But was it possible 
that by engaging and volunteering with volunteer it yourself, their business could do better as a result. The tradesperson's business turns out yes. Firstly, because they became local heroes in the vicinity of the youth club, which ended up getting them more business. They also, as it happens, turned out to spend more money with Wix as a result of engaging with the program. So all of a sudden, you've now got the sales director and the HR director, because we found that actually this was a good route into Wix for trainees and apprenticeships and work experience. So now I've got the managing director, the commercial director, and the HR director all saying, this is a good thing. Why should we stop doing it? And now that is absolute credit to the partners that worked on it. And I think that's the secret to why it lasted, you know, a decade and not a year. Yeah, such a great example. Because I think the some of the benefits that corporate partners get from supporting charities of, you know, some of the sort of positive PR and the goodwill and, you know, some of the nice feelings that, you know, the sort of staff motivation piece and things like that are great. But you can get that from working with any charity, not with the one specific charity that you're yeah. currently partnering with. So as you say, it's like, like next year, who should we do next? Uh, yeah, so where you can create those multifaceted kind of partnership benefits. I mean, that's that's a fantastic example where there are just benefits to almost every stakeholder in that, that kind of map. And I suppose you have to do that mapping and really think about it, don't you, in terms of who the different people are that matter to the organization and then think yeah. about where you, where you can add value. And also bringing back the example of bringing that funder, maybe that was foolish, uh, turned out well in that case, into the wash-up meeting saying, yes, you mm. are dealing with organizations and you're dealing with people, which sounds terribly cliched. And what I mean by it is not being afraid to share some of the wider context, some of the wider challenges to say, look, this isn't a formal pitch. This isn't even a formal suggestion of what we might do together. But I wonder if I could ask your advice about a challenge we're facing in the bigger picture. And I think before you know it, the business will start sharing their own challenges with you as well. And you're now interacting as two humans, two fellow travelers rather than a charity and a corporate partner. Now, I know that there will be people listening who will think something along the lines of, well, it's all right for this guy. You know, he's so well connected and, you know, he's got these links into all these different sectors and blah, blah, blah. How how am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to start from nothing when I don't have any of that pre-existing stuff and people don't recognize my name? And so it's, you know, just another another email in the inbox. What would you say to <laughs> to those people? I think that building your network in the first place is incredibly exciting and not enough people sit down with a blank sheet of paper on a regular basis saying, who would I like to meet and start to do some mapping around that. I've found that joining certain organizations, for me, many years ago, it was actually an organization called eCademy, sadly no longer in existence, but gave me access to some of those communities where if I befriended the host, if you like, the organizer of those communities, I found that was almost like within snakes and ladders, the ladder mm. that could connect me faster than ever to the people within that particular ecosystem. So organizations, you know, like for me, the Entrepreneurs' Organization, the Great British Entrepreneur Awards, which I went on to host for 10 years. I also found for me being a host, and I don't mean on stage now, I just mean of coffee, of early evening drinks, never paying for a room, but just saying I am gathering a few people. And I soon realized that maybe 10% of them wanted to come and say hi to me, but the rest was knowing that they might bump into other interesting characters. So I think you don't have to be extrovert to do it, but if you can become a convener, that can supercharge 
your network as an organization, but also you can do it individually. I actually think, Alex, 90% of networking is the knack of keeping in touch. Mm. So the second blank sheet of paper I would refer to is the list of techniques that you're using to keep in touch with people. One of my favorite ones is when I see an interesting article or tweet or you know whatever it might be, story, I try to send it on to someone and I just say, I saw this and I thought of you. And it's just a really simple, I'll often also add no need to reply, but just yeah. dropping into people's lives with little crumbs of helpfulness on a regular basis. It doesn't have to lead then to saying, and shall we have coffee? Mm-hmm. But just that slow, it's it's the formation of keeping in touch habits, which is the secret to keeping in touch. And if anyone thinks, well, I haven't got anything to bring to the party, it's almost certain that you're listening to this within an organization that's making a difference in the world. That's something in a world where a lot of people in the business world worry that they don't have meaning in their work. You have your curiosity. If you're able to choose a positive form of energy to project into a conversation, believe me, that cheers an awful lot of people up. Um, so, so I think there's a real abundance of um, a sort of, um, there's a real um, sort of surplus of good things often in the people that um, feel, feel that they um, don't have those things. The other conclusion I've made is that it's more possible than ever to zigzag between sectors and specialisms within a career. And all too often I'll meet someone who says, well, of course, I've been in this sector for 10 years now. I couldn't possibly do anything else. And so I say that to people in business who want to get into charity, charity who want to get into business, or people plowing a furrow between these different sectors, which I find increasingly common. And with that, I think that's a really good idea about like sharing useful content so you're, you're adding value and you're just you know staying in touch with people without as you say without necessarily saying can we have a catch-up which maybe doesn't have a particular purpose and you know kind of takes up more diary space but do you just tend to do that on a sort of natural intuitive basis or do you have any structure in terms of mapping out who you want to be staying in touch with because I mean you you must have hundreds if not thousands of people that you've connected with that you'd ideally like to stay in touch with and that's that's a lot of people to kind of think you know just naturally think of so do you have any kind of structure that you put around it i do i think of it almost in terms of you know stretches that you would do uh, as instructed by your whoever it might be your physio or your gp or something so some of those stretches involve getting back in touch with someone that you've lost touch with and that's a really important stretch and mm-hmm. you shouldn't feel afraid to call it out and go i'm so sorry we've lost touch and it's my fault. You know, I've always had what I call a kitchen cabinet, like uh, like the you know uh, prime minister's cabinet, but a kitchen cabinet, less formal, uh, like a personal advisory board. Um, people I can turn to for advice who I know will give me uh, often very candid feedback on an idea or something I'm engaged in. So I make a note. Another stretch would be, have I checked in with my kitchen cabinet members recently about whatever it might be? Um, I think reaching out to, you know, a, a colleague you know, perhaps in another organization. So I think of that as a particular stretch and then forming those habits. So is it sharing the interesting article? Is it inviting them to a little gathering? I've just decided I'm going to do a day in a few weeks time where I'm going to take a group, I think maybe 20 of us to Bournemouth for the day, which might sound a bit like a jolly. It probably is. But but, but, but time has told me that those moments where you take time to gather people who are close to you and that you want to get to know better tend to be the standout, most enjoyable and most valuable times of all, uh, which is very counterintuitive when you're planning them or explaining them to a slightly horrified colleague going, you're what? 
You're gonna you're gonna go for a day. What's the point? What's the agenda? And I think often when people have come to my gatherings, they've said, Well, what's the theme? Will there be speakers? And when I reveal, no, we are here to meet each other, either they're horrified or inspired or sometimes a combination. Mm. And so do you find those those sort of more social occasions help to build those professional relationships? Oh, massively. I um I never ask anyone, what do you do? Because a lot of people don't enjoy what they do. And you've asked someone a question about the thing they don't enjoy. So that's a, that's a gaffe immediately. It also can suggest, when I say, what do you do? It suggests I might be about to judge you based on your job. And I don't think that's a good look either. Mm. The third and biggest problem with saying, what do you do? Is you go down a cul-de-sac. If you tell me you work for Thames Water, we'll end up talking about sewage. When in the moment before I asked you what you do, we could have talked about anything in the world. So for me, that's the secret of building rapport, not asking, not knowing what someone does for as long as possible. So I want to gather people in their own personal capacity, help them build rapport with each other. And then as and when they feel comfortable to reveal part or all of their quotes, day job or professional life, they can do that. But I'm convinced more than I've ever been convinced before the breakthroughs problem solving happens when people from different worlds bond with each other, feel comfortable in each other's presence, expressing ideas, expressing doubts, uh, expressing things that could do with solving. And you don't do that by forcing them to wear hats and corporate business cards and titles, because in fact, that locks people down. And so, so I think it's all about creating those sort of psychologically safe places where people can play with ideas and get to know each other. Yeah, I really like this idea. And I think I've probably done bits of things like this, but I'm, I, I think maybe I should host something again soon. So I'm going to ask you a bit more about that. But just before we do, so what do you do is a bad question. So yes. what what's the what would you suggest instead of that? Well, I think it's quite a personal one. So I definitely encourage you to come up with your own. I use a phrase, funnily enough, I was at an event last night. I use a phrase, uh, if I feel confident with the person that they won't think I'm being cheeky, I say, what's keeping you out of trouble? if I know them a little, I will often say what's keeping you busy. Because that means that they can tell me about the holiday they're going on. They can tell me about the bit of work they're having done at home. They can tell me about the fact they've just started piano lessons. Yeah. So so I think... Yeah, so you can choose almost whatever you're most interested in at the moment, can't you? Rather than having to say, well, this is the job I do. It might be well, I've just launched a podcast or I've just started, you know, playing golf or whatever it might be. And by, um, by the same yeah. token, if someone's asking you, what do you do? Uh, I'm not suggesting you should push back the question, but if you offer them a series of hooks rather than a one-line mm. answer, mm. you say, well, I've just finished a podcast recording. I'm off for lunch uh, in this part of the world. I've just started um, you know, learning about the solar system. You've given them a range and they can go wherever they want. It tends to lead to much better conversation. Right. And to come back to the convening of people for for some kind of get together what how do you structure it if you're if if we're assuming it's not going to be any speakers not going to be a kind of you know this is the theme of the day and so on what like maybe use your Bournemouth example if that's a good one what what will you get people doing together and oh, what, so will, that, that... <laughs> what will you, and what will you tell or maybe it's not a good example you can use another one but what will you tell people in advance when you're inviting them? How will you think about structuring the day? Well, there is a there, there, there is a case study. I mean, if you're doing if you're doing, you know, it could be it could be a breakfast, it could be an early evening drinks or uh, or, or, or something. I, th- I think the key is that you as a host need to be mobile. So when I worked 
Uh, so I worked at Disney World for six months. I was a butler in Redcoat for a summer season. And that taught me about, you know, meeting people from any walk of life, but also being able to get away from conversations in a, in a, in a, in a non-rude friendly way and, 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 and move around because you want to be able to say hi to someone as they arrive. You want to say goodbye to someone as they leave. You need to be able to excuse yourself to move around. So you, when you're hosting, don't get locked in. And I know we're going into the detail, but I think it really matters because I think hospitality, looking after people is at the core of every business and organization. And I don't think enough people tune into it. So as a result, they don't make people feel comfortable. So people don't express themselves. On the Bournemouth example, and I've done several of these to Brighton and Bristol, and they have to begin with a B, obviously. And um, there, we will go somewhere, we will meet for coffee, but co-hosted so that we bump into local interesting people. So, so, so that would be coffee. We would have lunch somewhere at the Bristol um, Old Vic, is it, or Young Vic? Uh, and my last one. But then we would spend the afternoon going, probably dividing and conquering to a series of interesting organizations to find out what they do, to ask questions, to learn. And then we would all come back together in the early evening for a debrief, reflect on what we've learned, and then if people wanted to stay on. But that they, they tend to be learning days as much okay. as anything, you know. But people from charities, businesses, government, often people in transition between roles as well, when they're when they're doing some thinking, it's it's hard to rethink your future when you're sat behind the desk of your current role. Mm. So you'll you'll set up those meetings, obviously, in advance. You'll think, okay, here's several interesting organisations in, in that city, booking mm. some time, and, and will they tend to be people you already know, so they're, they're no, happy to do you a bit of a favour, or, or are I those like organisations to... getting something out of it? So, so, sometimes, I, I hope they all are. I have a blend of approaching people I know, but then opening it up as well. So I work um, probably three or four days a year with what we call like an innovation safari. I do it with my partners at Good Innovation, where we'll bring about 40 household name charities together. And the goal there is to pick a theme, but then we will deliberately bombard them or ping their brains with people from very different industries. It could be someone working in virtual reality or the metaverse or someone who's just built a billion dollar new bank from scratch, you know, and a theme might be turnaround or fixing hated industries or the future of storytelling. I'm deliberately not asking charity leaders to come and talk to other charity leaders there. And when I ask the person who does something totally different, I'm deliberately asking them not to bother translating what this means for the charity listener or the charity guest because I want the charity listener or guest to work that out for themselves. So I'm more interested in doing interesting things to people's minds and brains, if you see what I mean. So for example, when we went to Brighton, I put a note out to some trusted friends and said, I'm heading to Brighton for the afternoon. I'd like to meet a series of interesting people. I don't really care what they do. I just want them to be really passionate about what they do. And one of the first recommendations I got back was from a photographer friend who said, you've got to go and meet this guy who has a chili shop by the seafront. Turns out this guy was world-class and world-class passionate about chilies. It was one of the best encounters we've ever had yeah. because it blew, <laughs> it blew people's bodies and minds. <laughs> it was something totally different. It helped us immerse ourselves. And I, I hope, Alex, this doesn't sound sort of too trite and playful as a sort of way of thinking, but strangely, the passion was infectious and it was something they weren't expecting. And I think too often in life, we're given the things we've been expecting and, and that doesn't make for sparky uh, thinking and change. Mm, yeah. 
Uh, and I'm going to ask a, another detailed question. You can tell that I like to get into the detail of these things. But if people are wondering, you know, if people are thinking, yeah, that sounds good. I'd like to do that. What's the sort of um, the sort of business model to this? Like for you, is it part of your overall thing? And you're thinking long term, you know, it's just good to develop these relationships and so on. Or are people paying to come on this trip or is there some funding yeah. in place so, or how does that work so so in 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 those examples uh they pay their own way uh so in other words their tickets if there's accommodation involved they would pay their own way and then i team up with brilliant people for example in bristol um you know uh, Bryony phillips heather mcdonald nick sturge who would help us source local sponsors we frankly don't take any money out of it at all but those sponsors would help to cover some lunch or some drinks or so on and get recognition and of course invited to those gatherings so and any surplus on those days actually we gave to a local charity down in bristol so so that has been part of the model why i do it is it gives me the chance to build relationships and goodwill with people that i either admire or would like to do more um collaborating with so for me it's it's a complete no-brainer Right. I think we should start to wrap up because I know you've got a train to catch soon. So I'm going to ask you what you would recommend to people who want to learn more about building their network and maybe thinking about these sort of cross-sector partnerships and the things we've been talking about. Where What would you signpost them to? Any sort of resources or reading or anything like that? Um, I think the best book ever written, if you can bear to be seen reading it on the train, is... Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, um, which might be decades old, but is uh, as, as, as relevant as ever. Um, I created a 12-part audio course called Build a Better Network, uh, which I'd be very happy to offer uh, a version of, and we could do a, um, a, a special deal for your listener. Also, I've created a scholarship for that course, Build a Better Network. So if there are beneficiaries of the charities that our listener is working with that would benefit from that, that will be the beneficiaries um, for no charge at all. Likewise, for anyone who finds himself without a job at any particular time. Um, and, um, and and so that's my hopefully small but useful thing that I can do. I think just in terms of practical steps, the, the connection that people don't spend enough time thinking about um, without sounding too sort of deep about it is themselves. It's thinking, who do they want to meet? Who do they already know? Where would they like to go? And if you think about someone's bio or CV, very often it just talks about what they do today and what they do yesterday or what they did yesterday. Mm. And I'm very interested in this idea of a future CV. So why not put down on a piece of paper, three bullet point items on your future CV? And why not take a risk and put that out there, not necessarily to the whole world, but to 10 people that you know and trust and say, these are three things I'd like to do over the coming months or years. And any advice you have any connection you have that might lead me even one step closer to those things on my future CV, I would be hugely grateful. Um, and and I, I think it's that sort of forward thinking that people um, that people could do even more of. Wayne Gretzky, everyone knows, the ice hockey player said, I skate to where the puck is going. And I think very often, particularly with building networks, we have to express where we want to go and we have to ask other people about where they want to go. because. The trick to great collaboration is not to be catching up reading press releases about our competitors and our collaborators. It's to be one or two steps ahead 
in future conversations saying, where do you want to go? Because the seeds of those future collaborations start in great questions today. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Always interested in learning about. Yeah, great questions. It's uh, something I've been reading up on a little bit, thinking about podcast hosting and that sort of thing. Yeah, Ollie's been really kind to let me have a look at the Build a Better Network course. I've had a little look under the bonnet, if you like. Uh, it's yeah, it's really good. Loads of guest contributors as well. So lots of good content from Ollie. And then a, a really eclectic mix, as you might imagine, in terms of guest contributors. Got people like Lord Billamoria, Penny Power, Simon Woodruff. Lots of interesting people there. Audio audio kind of sessions and then also like resources, a workbook and things like that. So I definitely recommend people check that out. And yeah, if we can get a, a code for listeners, then that'd be awesome. Uh, and and as uh, Ollie mentioned, there's a, a kind of scholarship opportunity for for people that that um, are applicable for that. So Ollie, is there what would, is there anything f- that you would finally like to say? Just a, a final kind of request of the listener, or anything you'd like to promote at all? Any final words? Yeah, I, I'd like to let them in on a secret, which some of them uh, might not know. Which is if you turn on the subtitles on kids tv you double the chance of a child becoming a proficient reader and that was a sort of magic trick that i wasn't aware of until i read about the work of an amazing guy called bridge katari in india and what that made me think was well we should do a campaign which we have done turn on the subtitles tots and we should direct that partly at parents with the help of stephen fry and lenny henry and sandy toxvig and through schools with the help of twinkling gcse pod But actually, what we should really do is target the BBC, Sky, Netflix, Amazon to turn the default setting from off for subtitles to on for subtitles so that you can still turn them off. And so what I'm letting you in on is a stealth global literacy campaign, which with the flick of a switch could literally change millions of lives. So that's driven by Henry Warren and Nina Hale. I'm its co-founder. But the one thing I wake up pretty much every morning thinking about is how do we turn the tots, turn on the subtitles, turn on the subtitles campaign into a global success story, knowing that we genuinely don't care who gets the credit. So you've got some really interesting thinkers and minds that listen to the podcast. If anyone's got any thoughts on that to help us on our way, uh, I'd be hugely grateful because it's such a simple idea that I think we'd be kicking ourselves in 20 years if we hadn't fulfilled its potential. That's an incredible start. What was that? The you know children when they watch TV with the subtitles on uh, what what was sorry get, I'll get it wrong so you you, so you will, me again you, will do, you, will, you effectively double the chance of them becoming a proficient reader so I'll give you one tiny oh, was a significant study um, which was that in a group of children who were watching television without subtitles thirty five percent of them became proficient readers at the end of the trial okay and by the way this was only an hour of basically subtitled music videos a week, an hour a week, okay? In the group that had the subtitles for that extended trial, 70% became efficient readers. So it has this transformational effect. We were told by certain broadcasters that they would turn the subtitles on if they wanted to. And our thought was very much the default matter. So we ran some research with Nesta. And by the way, if the subtitles at the beginning of our six-week trial were turned off, 99% of the children kept them off. If the subtitles were on at the start of the six-week trial, 99% of the children kept them on. So if anyone listening is into nudge 
thinking, particularly for large corporates and organizations, defaults matter enormously. And I'm not sure that the bosses of Netflix and Amazon realize quite what a uh, what a social change they're sitting on if they flick that switch. Some more long shot emails to send, <laughs> I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have uh, we 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 continue we 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 continue to send them very often. Alex, yeah. these things are about timing, aren't they? They're about timing. Yeah. yeah. And I did yeah. know that, and now's the moment we should talk. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Ollie. That's been really interesting, really enjoyable. And I, I hope it does spark ideas for people. And, and certainly if people are interested in getting more into the detail of those kind of tips for how to build a better network, I definitely recommend that course. Thank you, Alex. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charity Impact Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time and attention. I know how precious a resource time is. I hope you enjoyed the show. If I could trouble you for a further two minutes of your day, I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a review on your podcast player via ratethispodcast.com slash charity. You can engage with us on LinkedIn and Twitter, just search Charity Impact Podcast, or search Charity Impact Podcast in your browser to find our website where you can email me directly and you can subscribe to our email list for the opportunity to submit questions for me to ask upcoming guests. You can also find all the show notes and the previous episodes and links to resources that our guests have recommended there. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.